la 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 thank you so much Buck Rogers in the 25th century it's the wrong show oh yeah well what if Buck Rogers was on Galactica well he was launched in 1987 right NASA launched the last of the deep space probes and in a freak mishap, Ranger Shree and its pilot, Captain William Buck Rogers, were blown out of their trajectory into an orbit that froze his life support systems and returned Buck Rogers to Earth 500 years later. So he can never have met Galactica? No. Well, he could have. They landed in 1980. Yeah. He launched in 1987. He could conceivably have met the Galactica. I'm just stunned that you're sat there, amazed that I remember that from memory. No, I'm not. The year that he landed was 2491. I kind of expected it. (laughs) (laughs) So you you weren't shocked that I remembered the opening monologue from Hardcastle and McCormick word for word. You weren't shocked that I remembered the opening monologue from Buck Rogers in the 25th century word for word. And yet, whenever you used to come to ask me to help you with maths homework, you were stunned that I didn't remember any of that. I guess, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) See, I don't remember important stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, shall we get on with the show? Okay. Are you sitting quite comfortably? Then I'll begin. Hey, kids, comics! Comic books. An art form early alive. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. With digital downloads and bookstore penetration, which sounds a bit rude, we can make them better than they were before. Better... Stronger. Faster. Hey kids, comics! And here are your hosts, Andrew and Michael Leyland. Hello, everybody. Hello, everyone. And welcome to Hey Kids Comics 1980. We have been replaced by people who are far more photogenic and less expensive. Let's be honest. Although I don't think Kai and Vance were less photogenic than Boa Luke, <laughs> were they really? Just not particularly good actors either. In memory no. <laughs> so you have to drive back car though. So that's all that counts. Yeah, but so uh, you want the flying motorcycle, don't you? I don't know. I'm trying to think of any others. I suppose we could be Miss Ellie and um, Jock. Okay. You have no idea what that one is, do you? No. From Dallas. I know. Where they replaced both of those with other actors. Okay. Barbara Belgedis was replaced by Donna Reed. Right. And then Barbara Belgedis came back! Okay. <laughs> and Howard Keel replaced whoever it was who played Jock originally because the poor guy died. Right. So he didn't come back. Well, he did get shot in show. Was that a real bullet? No, that's JR. Ah, okay. That's a different human. Well, I, I never watched Dallas, so. You were dead. You were dead. Was, <laughs> you weren't alive when Dallas was on the air. Oh, okay. Wait. We are going to take our cue from Mark Taylor. Hello, Mark. Who we met in London. We did. He bought you a beer. He did. He is your best friend forever now, isn't he? He is. Because he bought you a beer. <laughs> Doesn't take much. <laughs> no, you're a very cheap date. I am. It has to be said. So, Mark was the one who suggested that we rechristen the show Hey Kids Comics 1980. Mm-hmm. And that is what we have done. But for what that means, you're just going to have to wait till after the email section. Lovely listener. We're only ever going to cover 80s comics. Shut up! <laughs> God, you blow your load too quickly, don't you? That was a tease, man! 
you can cut it out. Oh. Well, I was making a joke that the re- next year is just going to be 80s. So the entire year, yeah, that's all we're going to do. Yeah. 80s comics. David Gutierrez is the first out of the sack tonight. Leyland and Son, which makes us sound like um, Steptoe and Son, doesn't it? Or any other company. Or ever any other company and so. Yeah. Is there ever a company and a daughter? No. Does that never happen? No. Because oh. it's all yieldy, isn't it? All oh, right, yeah. Okay, fair enough. First off, David says he loved the 90s podcast. This 90s is my jam. What does that mean? Oh, I see that a lot jelly, this is my jam. What does that mean? It means... Is it the stuff you spread on your toes? No, this is my funk. Oh, right. This is, this is my... So I've often thought, this isn't the stuff you spread on your... Well, this is the stuff you eat? Well, like, when you jam out to your music, it's oh, right. a song you like. Is this, is this a, a down with the kids thing? It is, yeah. Right, so you were fully on board with what David Gutierrez right. was saying yeah. there. And I was like, jam? Yeah. On toast? No, you're pretty square, man. I am exceptionally <laughs> square. <laughs> Yes, yes. You should have been there, but instead you're just too square. Hey, if you were there, you're a liar. <laughs> or something like that. Anyway, David says, first Sue's sexy ass costume. I seem to remember her being under the influence of malice, John Burns' seductive leather-clad villainess from the Secret Wars 2 era. Shortly after this issue and the supposed death of Mr. Fantastic, she covered up the boob and ab windows and adopted a slightly more modest costume. Superman Blue ran far too long. Some interesting stories out of that, particularly amazing moments in Morrison and Porter's JLA, in which Superman takes on the moon's gravity. But when Superman split into Superman Red and Superman Blue, it was long past time to call it quits. Metal Spidey, oi vey. Costume came first, then the toy. Spider-Man's Torment storyline, yeah, 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 rise above it all. So glad McFarlane found a phrase and stuck to it. I have to say, McFarlane brought me back into Spider-Man during the Michelini era. It was energetic, it had character, it had a Spider-Man who was as creepy as he was in the Ditko days. It was good stuff. And I can't tell you how psyched I was to pick up X-Men and X-Force. Jim Lee's art set my heart soaring. There was something very exciting and joyously raw about Liefeld. Plus, Liefeld represented so many of us in an era who wanted to become comic artists. What, because he was no good? That was me, that, sorry. <laughs> he was one of us, young and living the dream. I liken this to some of the appeal of Jeff Johns, a true fan-turned-pro. Young David had no idea Lee and Layfield would be off the Marvel books a few months and go on to work I found less exciting. Boy, was Kyle Rayner a necessary shot in the arm. I grew up with Hal Jordan, but Kyle will always be my Green Lantern. Hal was a little dull. A boxing glove, please. Kyle will create the boxer, and he'd be a robot with missile fists. I'm not sure if I'm remembering this correctly, but I seem to recall one of the rules in Kyle's stories was he couldn't create the same construct twice. Interesting challenge for artist Daryl Banks. Plus, Kyle was the last lantern. That made him even more special. Oh, Hulk wanted me to apologise for confusing Leyland with Michael. He says, while he's not a racist, all you puny humans look alike except better. <laughs> Michael, great job on Seven Soldiers, damn it. There you go. Are you happy about that now? I, I am. Are you happy? Now I'm, now I'm not on the Hulk's hit list. <laughs> smash list. The Hulk smash list. Yeah. Do you think he genuinely has a list? I don't think he can write. Uh, I think smart Hulk can write. Well, would he not smash the pencils? Oh, right, you mean that he couldn't physically hold Unless got a writing big implement. chunky ones you get in Black Pearl. Yeah, or one of them kids' crayons that's huge. Yeah. <laughs> so even though he's smart, he still writes in crayon. That'd be funny. That, that, somebody should have done that. I think. Thanks, David. Michael Bailey's emailed in. Mikey Mike B is back. 
in the house is what we say, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Just not this hat. Well, it is the 90s, so... Oh, so that works then, doesn't yeah. it? Oh, right, brilliant. Nothing but the 90s part two, insert electric boogaloo reference here. <laughs> Leyland's, well, you've gone and done it again. You pick at least two comics to discuss that hit me right in the feels. Is that another down with the it kids? Is, is yeah. it? <laughs> How do you do it? Well, Michael, what it is... You know these drones that Amazon have got? <laughs> we actually have Demanzo core drones. Uh, it's the best thing we've got from Demanzo. It is, because, and this is the best bit, he's not giving them to anyone else! <laughs> he's only giving them to us! <laughs> and that's only because yep. we saw him, you know, with Thingy. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. We, don't, we don't like to mention it. We, well, we get sued. Because, well, that as well, but we don't like to talk smack about other podcasters. But... But him and Demanza were, you know, they didn't look right to me. No. But I'm very open-minded there about were more these things. Than two backs. Yes, but to keep us quiet, he gave <laughs> us the drones. Yeah, didn't he? And these drones, this is the best bit. These drones are set to a microchip that has, unbeknownst to all of us, been planted in every single Demanza corporate employee. <laughs> and what we did, Michael, was we. Flew that drone into the sky, <laughs> sent it at you, and it followed you everywhere. And just at moments when it caught your conversations, talking about 90s comments, because I know you do that all the time, Michael, <laughs> it picked them, it fed them back to us, and we said, right, we'll have that one, and we'll have that one, and we'll have that one. But so, not that one. But not that one. Yeah, we're not having that one. We don't want it to be too suspicious. No, 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 but now we've given the game away. We have. Haven't we? So, Michael, you know when you caught those things at the corner of your eye and you turned around and it was like, what was that? That was our drone! <laughs> <laughs> Oh, we will be using those for nefarious purposes. We will. <laughs> anyway, Green Lantern 51, Michael opens with. It occupies a special place in my fan heart, as it was one of the few times I was on the ground floor of something in comics and managed to stay the entire time. For reasons far too boring to explain here, I didn't get my driver's license until the senior year of high school, so being able to go to the comic shop whenever I liked was still a novel idea. On this day, I walked into the shop, and there on the rack was Green Lantern 51 and 52, and thus began my reading relationship with Kyle Rayner. With the exception of ill-advised few months in 2003, I stuck with Kyle through his entire run as a Green Lantern, and for the most part, I enjoyed every minute of it. There were some rough patches and times when I just wasn't feeling the book like I had in the past, but for the most part, I was down with Kyle's adventures. He was that artistic, leather-jacketed, whirring guy that was just too damn cool. Add to the fact that he came in in short order, he dated both Donna Troy and Jade from Infinity Inc., like the cool guy that blows into town and immediately hooks up with the girl you've had a crush on all your life. And then after that relationship ends, because of John Byrne, he hooks up with another girl you've had a crush on. We should have hated Kyle, but we didn't, because Ron Miles and Judd Winnick made him likeable. You felt for the guy, you appreciated the journey he was on. Sure, he was very much in the Peter Parker mould, but we'd gotten used to that in the 1990s. So thanks for choosing this book to cover. Flash 92 was something of a bother for a long time. See, I didn't seriously collect The Flash until Zero Hour, which was issue 94. I then did what most fans do and went back to find the early issues I hadn't read yet. Most of them are Wade Run was easy to find, and more importantly was affordable, except for 92. Bart Allen's first appearance was a hot comic, and thus always just a little out of reach. Add that to the fact I couldn't find it because of all the comic shops in Allentown had the exact same backstock. And it wasn't until 1996 that I got my hands on that book. Now you can find it pretty cheap because the bottom fell out of the back issue market, but for a time, this was a wall book with a high price sticker on it. Uh, it still is for the most part over here. 
Mm. I was really lucky when I found that in the 50p bin because I've still seen that priced at like 3.95, yeah. four quid. The first appearance of Impulse, and you've got to wonder why. Mm. I mean, one of those things that I think the new 52 should have done was just kill the back issue market, stone dead. Yeah, it's like your back issues don't matter anymore. Well, apparently that one still carries a price tag for some reason. Finally, the all-new, all-different, all-these-guys-are-in-our-best-selling books at the moment, Fantastic Four. I've never read this. I have no idea why, but I have yet to do so. Oddly enough, this team will always be a trading card to me. I managed to find the entire box of Marvel Series 2 cards in 1991, and one of those cards was this version of the FF. I like the look of the team, but never enough to say I need to track down these issues. Shoes. To be fair, around that time, these were expensive books, so I never had the money. Sounds like a fun story. Anyway, thanks for hours of amusement. Glad Mikey's sticking around, and I'm looking forward to Hey Kids 1980. Your friend, Mikey Mike B. Well, this is Hey Kids 1980, <laughs> so we hope you will enjoy it. Thank you, Michael. Thank you for emailing in. Ryan Wilson's emailed in. I believe Ryan is a new emailer. <laughs> does, it, does he not get a theme tune? I, I don't know what theme tune to do. We should have. Can we sing the theme so. tune? Yeah. Can I sing the theme tune? <laughs> we should, yeah, we should do. Woo, 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 yeah. woo, woo, sure. And have balloons and confessive. Like, no one can see but us. <laughs> <laughs> uh, finally caught up. Brian says, hello Andrew and Michael, or Michael and Andrew, no, you were right the first time. <laughs> I started listening to the show a few months ago and I'm finally caught up. How did you find us, Ryan? I always like knowing the answer to that question. I don't have anything to say about any specific show, but it's been great to follow along with everything. I know that I would not have read most of what you covered if you had not talked about it first. Often your coverage is so entertaining, when I read the actual issues, they're quite a bit of a letdown. Yeah, I would imagine we did make Web of Spider-Man 100 sound better than it was. <laughs> Even through my bored delivery. <laughs> Do we have to cover this comic? No, thank you, Ryan. We appreciate that. I have to admit, I have no idea what the future of the show will be. I'm not sure whether to wish Michael luck at university or college or whatever. To be safe, good luck with the future in a non-specific way. I enjoyed your coverage of Web of Spider-Man 100. (laughs) I'm glad you enjoyed it, Ryan. Because we didn't enjoy reading it. I never liked this story. Oh, and he saves it. (laughs) I didn't like the first part of the saga from Web of Spider on 8489, or the sequel from 97 to 100. I guess I could try to explain it, but frankly it just doesn't matter and life's too short trying to get into the Blood Rose, Alfredo, Richard Fist stuff, especially as I think this was a retcon of the earlier Web 84 through 89. I do want to mention that in the earlier Web storyline did have Hobgoblin splitting into Hobgoblin and your Maximum Carnage favourite, Demo Goblin. Perhaps the only storyline from this era of Web that I liked... Less was the Who Is Facade debacle a year from now, where we get a mystery villain that no one cares about, reader or character. Perversely, I would like to hear you cover this, but I can't in good conscience put anyone through it. (laughs) Keep up the great work, and thank you for the podcast. You are very welcome, Ryan, and thank you for emailing in. It's this week's message from Chris of the Franklin of the Supermates podcast. An acute case of vertigo. Oh, are we past the 90s with the emails oh, yeah. or, or will still the, I think there will still be some 90s emails trickling yeah. through the sack <laughs> hello Leyland ah nude art classes did we did we bring back a fond memory there Chris <laughs> 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 yes, that sounded like he enjoyed his nude art classes that doesn't imply that he was the nude one does it well for 20 quid an hour <laughs> I looked out in that department said Chris my class is always having an attractive female model ah 
And yes. thus, everything is explained. Mm. Some of my fellow art majors were not so lucky having the wrinkly old man Michael is fearing. <laughs> my non-artist friends and roommates would beg to see my sketch pad each day after class. It's not that bad, actually. Three three weeks afterwards, mm. you just get past the fact you're drawing a wrinkly old man. <laughs> is that what you ended up with? Tell the lovely listeners, they don't know, I know, but they don't know. Well, for my live art class, uh, for two hours a week, I have to draw a wrinkly old man. You have to do a jab of the hut. D- <laughs> it's not that oh, bad. Shoot and let's just say there's not much to draw. <laughs> but so you're saying he's not portly? Uh, yes, that's what I'm saying. Okay. Once you get past the fact there's a, a, a naked old guy standing in the middle of the room, it's, it's kind of real re- relaxing two hours. Excellent. Does he ever? Does he ever? You know, clean himself off and then wipe your hand? <laughs> uh, I hope not. <laughs> Excellent. Chris continues. Whomever you get as a model, good luck in your craft class, Michael. And there, you're welcome to the Hobgoblin idea. Hey, you gave us a Supermates idea on Comics Wedding, so we're even. Michael, I'm sorry. Don't be sorry. The Hobgoblin <laughs> stuff's brilliant. For the Roger Stern stuff. Okay. And then it's... <laughs> crash and burn, baby. You guys made me imagine the universe where Batman speaks with a combination of Christian Bale and Grant Morrison's voice. Swearing to me. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, come on, even Steve Lewis has got to appreciate us bringing that out of retirement for that. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for that, Chris. I will admit I'm not much of a Vertigo guy. Most of my Vertigo experience comes from the days of the comic shop clerk in college or university, as you put it, when I read practically everything. That being said, I enjoyed hearing you two discuss all three of these stories and may now be inclined to check them out. Oh, no, we did a Vertigo 90s, didn't we? Yeah. Do you know, I've completely forgotten about that. (laughs) I remember well when Sandman, the proto-Vertigo books, were still on the fringe of the DCU. Heck, most of them appeared in the loose-leaf edition of Who's Who in the early 90s. Even then you could see they were practically a separate company. As a reluctant cat owner, he just seemed to show up on our doorstep as a kitten. I know full well that the cat is always running the show, so Game and Story seems perfectly reasonable to me. I always thought Preacher was way too out there, but the idea of giving it to the Anne Rice-like vampires appeals to me. I'd never heard of The Eaters before this. I'm really surprised someone hasn't made a film of this. If handled well, I can see it going over well with the art house crowd. You mentioned Sandman in the classroom. My son has been allowed to read Jeff Smith's Bone in his seventh grade literature class, and he's been tested on it. The teacher actually has a list of books and curriculum based on those books, and Bone is one of them. Not quite Sandman, but I was pleasantly shocked that this was going on. I think you guys should get Ted McGinley to replace Andy. He's the utility replacement actor in the US, having replaced John Howard on Happy Days, Julie on The Love Boat, and The Neighbour's Husband on Married with Children, and even Aquaman on the self-referential episode of Batman the Brave and the Bold. He's perfect for the part. I don't know, I don't know if I want to be played by Ted McGinley. (laughs) Didn't Ted McGinley take on a show and then it got cancelled as soon as he came on it? I mean, other than Married with Children that ran for like 50 years. (laughs) <laughs> Kelly Bundy was clearly out of high school by the time that show started let alone by the time it finished Okay. not that we had a problem with Kelly Bundy quite liked Kelly Bundy anyway thank you very much Christopher thank you everybody who has emailed in David Gutierrez also got back and passed on a art drawing tutorial thing for Michael so thank you thank you jobs are good so we'll knock it on the head there for emails and return to them Next time, we're going to take a quick break and we will be right back with Hey Kids Comics 1980. 
two true freaks just got a little more random. Pop Culture Affidavit, the podcast that looks at everything random in the world of popular culture, is now on the Two True Freaks Network. Every episode is something different. Movies, comics, television, music. So join me, Tom Panneries, for Pop Culture Affidavit, the sworn testimony of a dork, at twotruefreaks.com and popcultureaffidavit.com. The 80s were probably the most interesting times in comics since the 1960s. The second Marvel Age kicked off with the arrival of Jim Shooter in the late 1970s, and love him or loathe him, but Big Jim is certainly a controversial figure. During the first half of his tenure at Marvel, pretty much every single one of Marvel's output was, at the very least, an enjoyable read. In 1981, at the higher end of the spectrum, Frank Miller was taking Daredevil and making it something that he's still been ripped off, <coughs> homaged today. John Byrne took the FF back to basics and made it a must-read comic in the process. Roger Stern was auditioning for The Amazing Spider-Man by making Peter Parker the spectacular Spider-Man more than just the other Spider-Man book. David Michelinie and Bob Layton redefined Iron Man. Chris Claremont was still building his X-Men empire, and Mike Zeck and J.M. DeMatteis started a much underrated run on Captain America. Even comics that may not be considered part of Marvel's main line were great. Star Wars, filling in the gaps between Empire and Jedi, was a must-read. Doctor Strange, again by Roger Stern, was the only time other than Ditko I've ever enjoyed his comics. And Conan was still going strong. Over the road, DC were no less interesting, albeit not quite as trend-setting. I think it's fair to say not a great deal of the early 80s DC comics are as memorable as Marvel's output. Superman was kind of stagnant, albeit with some interesting ideas, still being evident in the stories. Batman was in the early days of being redefined as a bi-weekly soap opera, nothing bad, but he was still a fur way away from being the Dark Knight. And Wonder Woman... Well, when was the last time Wonder Woman was interested? The Flash, Green Lantern and others all seem to be going through the motions. The only title really commanding any attention in 1981 was The New Teen Titans, a sales juggernaut by Marv Wolfman and George Perez. Perez took some of this newfound fame with him to Justice League, which was also an interesting read. I mention Marvel and DC not to disparage the indies, but because that's who we primarily concern ourselves with in these retrospectives. And I say 1981 specifically, as we are doing something a little bit different this time around. Unlike our episodes about the 60s, 70s and 90s, we are not going to be looking at different titles over the decade. As interesting as that was, we kind of feel we've played that out. Also, a key factor in this decision was that an awful lot of the big books of the 80s have become so iconic. Books like Watchmen, Dark Knight Returns, and Year One, and anything else Alan Moore wrote, that we don't really have any interest in them or feel we could bring anything new to those conversations. However, an idea percolated in the back of my mind. When we looked at the 60s, listener Michael Bradley emailed in and said... While I know these Silver Age episodes are limited in run, I'd love for the idea to become an occasional irregular feature. Comparing books from the big two that were side by side on the stands could make for an interesting look at the history of comics. And Michael's idea stuck with me. So, for the 80s, what we are going to do is not 
quite Michael's suggestion in its entirety. But look at the same four characters over the decade, picking comics that all came out in the same year. I tried Michael's suggestion of picking titles from the same month, but in quite a few cases we'd already covered them. Our thinking was that by taking this approach we could get a better feel for how the comics developed over the decade, paying attention not only to the characters and their development, but also printing processes and prices. Now, I know you're all chomping at the bit to find out which characters we'll be covering. Well, they will be 2 Marvel and 2 DC, and they will be, and give yourself a prize if you guess all of these, Superman, Batman, Spider-Man, and the X-Men. As usual, when we do this kind of thing, a few ground rules were set. The stories all had to come from the main comics. Batman and Detective Comics were eligible, The Brave and the Bold and Batman and the Outsiders, or guest appearances, were not. The reason for this was simple. The team-up titles of the time, Marvel Team-Up, DC Comics Presents, or Brave and the Bold, tended not to be stories about the title stars, rather more about the guest star du jour, and it was hard to get a feel for how the characters developed over those issues. They tended to be solid, done in one yarns, highly entertaining, but if you wanted to see how Peter Parker developed as a character over a decade, you wouldn't do it by reading Marvel Team-Up. For another, none of these team-up comics, even if we include Marvel 2 in 1, lasted the decade. Likewise, Batman and the Outsiders rarely, if ever, referred to the main Batman comics, so its impact on Batman was largely irrelevant. He was essentially Charlie in that series, with the Outsiders being his angels. It was a good comic, but only tangentially a Batman comic. There will be five shows focusing on 1981, 1983, 1985, 1987 and 1989, and any issue published or cover dated that year was eligible. This gave us about 15 months worth of comics to choose from. This is a little bit of a cheat, but our gaff, our rules. Issues were likewise chosen at random unless there was a specific issue that year that we wanted to address or a random choice ended up on an issue we've already covered. You and I sat down and discussed that for weeks, didn't we? Of course we did, yes. Alright, maybe hours. Alright, maybe minutes. Alright, maybe I came to you (laughs) and said, this is what we're doing. And you said... Okay. (laughs) That's pretty much how it went down. You looked over whatever it was you were reading or whatever game you were playing and I said, oh, this is a brilliant idea! We're going to cover the 1980s, but we're going to do completely you just went alright that was it it's my input it is it's your input to the show it's greatly appreciated well I mean nobody could do that as good as you do (laughs) quite frankly the first issue selected is Superman issue 365 cover dated November 1981 the cover by Ross Andrew and Dick Giordano allegedly, has Supergirl large in the frame, pointing a teeny tiny gun at Superman that is causing a minor case of shrinkage for the Man of Steel. Great Krypton, Superman thinks. Supergirl has gone power mad. There is no escape, says the Maid of Might. I'm shrinking you down to nothing. This issue's villain, Supergirl, runs the masthead. Then there's a box out with a question mark over a silhouette of Superboy asking... Where did Superboy go after leaving Smallville? I was assumed he just went to Metropolis. But yeah. Maybe he went to his fortress for 12 years. 
Okay, yeah, yeah. Just a thought. Uh, I did like that all three members of the Super Family were represented on the cover. The lighting on Supergirl's face is that kind of uplit, spooky thing we do with torches, which gives her a quite sinister look. And apparently the Charlie's Angels wavy blonde her look is still in fashion. Supergirl is also still suffering from disco hangover, as this is the era of the choker, plunging neckline and hot pants. Do you like that? Yeah. What do you like about it? I like the lighting. I like the shade and the lighting. Yeah. Ross Andrews great, which I think we mentioned quite a bit when we covered the 1970s clone side. Mm-hmm. Does it look to you, though, like her cape round her neck, or the choker round her neck, was forgotten about? Yeah. It looks like that's been added in post-production later, doesn't it? It's just the colourist. Yeah, it doesn't look like they've actually um, drawn the choker. Mm. But it suits a good cover. I like it. Two stories in this issue, the first being When Kryptonians Clash, by Carrie Bates, with art by Kurt Swan and Frank Chiramonte. Or Chiramonte. You think it is? Because it's spelled like Kira, Kira what's that? Kira Scuro, isn't it? Yeah. So maybe it's Chiramonte. Could be. Could be. Kira would fit, given that Kara is in the comics. Yeah. So you could have a Kara and a Kira. So it's quite good. Maybe there's only me that thinks that's good. <laughs> Superman flies to New York to rendezvous with his cousin, Kara, a.k.a. Supergirl, for their weekly get-together over coffee and pastries. However, when the Man of Tomorrow arrives, he sees Kara passed out under a bush and covered in green splodges. Kara, not the bush. Instantly recognising this as Virus X, a plague from Krypton, Superman whisks Kara to the Fortress of Solitude and bathes her in white kryptonite, the only known cure for Virus X. He leaves the cure to work its wonders and dozes off himself. After all, it's been five days since he last had a nap. Awoken by an alarm, Superman flies off to Chile to prevent a volcanic eruption. Kara also awakens to find Superman gone, but the computer bleeps to tell her that Superman's tiredness may affect his judgement. Superman has been pushing himself even more with various super feats around the globe. Even Supergirl gets a piece of the action, saving a bus of old deers from a rock slide, and this causes a flashback moment to when she was Superman's top secret weapon. Superman, meanwhile, is disposing of nuclear waste, preventing a forest fire, and generally being pretty damned awesome. So Supergirl accepts his accolades at the Chamber of Commerce on his behalf. A glass S-shield promoting his new film. Supergirl suddenly snaps, calls Superman a raving egotist, and smashes the display. Superman arrives, is brought up to speed, and leaves to pursue the Maid of Might. He ponders what caused this display of irrationalism, but, in the crowd, an alien called Blim reveals that he has affected Supergirl for revenge. Yes! Revenge! Now we're cooking, huh? Superman follows Supergirl to the fortress, where he deduces that he's already made his mistake. Supergirl was not affected by Virus X, rather a far more insidious virus. Before he can ponder more, Supergirl fires a microwave beam at him, shrinking him to near nothingness. Superman, however, lures Supergirl to the zoo, where he angers a tridist beast, who releases its defence mechanism, a rainbow-coloured energy beam that paralyses even Kryptonians. With Supergirl out cold, Superman re-embiggens himself and reboards his thought train. 
Supergirl was subjected to an energy-draining device, essentially sleep deprivation, and that made her cranky. It was also a sleep without dreams, and this made her even crankier. Still, the super duo are none the wiser as to the culprit, but it's okay, as he'll reveal himself to them in a I will be killed for failing moment. He dies. Superman and Supergirl, not exactly broken up about it, already have a suspect, and if they are correct, the problems are just beginning to be continued. Sadly, we will never cover part two. Okay. Well, never say never. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it will be next week, obviously, <laughs> but never say never again, as Sean Connery once said, which he should have stuck with, because never say never again isn't that good. Um, it sure is convenient, was it not? That Virus X hits Kara A on the day she was meeting Superman for coffee, and two while she was alone in the park. Yeah. Now, if this was all plotted, okay, you can argue that the guy has hit her with the fake virus while she was waiting for Superman, but that does beg the question, how did he get close to her? Well, he can just appear in the Fortress of Solitude, can't he? That's true, actually. So there is a very real possibility then that he did this to her, just appeared from nowhere, came back, yeah. and she was none the wiser. Does mean she doesn't have much in the way of super senses though, doesn't it? Fair enough, I'll go with that. That's okay. actually a good no prize explanation. <laughs> Alright, riddle me this one, Batman. Why aren't her legs affected? It hit her head first and it's not quite worked its way down to the legs. It's worked its way all the way down to her hands though. Yeah. <laughs> Alright, so baby virus X doesn't affect shapely Kryptonian legs. Maybe. That's a very real possibility. Maybe it just looked at her in the hot pants and thought, I'm not ruining that, yeah. <laughs> it's possible. Alright. Uh, on almost every page, feminism yay, we are told that Supergirl is almost as good as Superman. Yeah. We're told that she's almost as intelligent as Superman. That she's almost as powerful as Superman. It's no wonder the poor girl has an inferiority complex. (laughs) Can you imagine going through your life being told at every junction, yeah, you're pretty cool, Supergirl, but Superman's just that little bit cooler than you are. I don't know, it's it's Superman, isn't it? Being almost as good as Superman is still kind of a good thing. Still kind of awesome. Yeah. Alright, fair enough. Maybe she's just really confident in her own skin so that she wasn't overly bothered that Superman was better than the everything yeah (laughs) she never rebelled either there's a nice nod to the cover of action comics where Supergirl was revealed to the world lovely little flashback about that I like that I like that she was wearing a blue skirt as well yeah that was a nice little touch the S shield that is unveiled looks exactly like the silver S shield from the beginning of Superman the movie Mm. which is why I made the bad joke the burlier joke (laughs) in the synopsis that it was just promoting his new film is it, is it supposed to be moved to somewhere else? Because it, it looks is. like it's part of the stage. It does look like it's part of the stage, but it is supposed to be being moved to the Superman Museum. Yeah, because yeah. what's good enough for The Flash yeah, yeah, yeah. is good enough for Superman. So why, why didn't they unveil it at the museum then? That would have made more sense, Yeah, one would have thought. But no, they, they didn't think of that, obviously. Mm. Superman has rockets that are made of Supermanium. Yeah. What the hell is Supermanium? I don't know, but when at the unveiling where <laughs> the alien shows up, just just look at what's on his little communication in that top right panel. What? Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> 
You are absolutely <laughs> page two, panel thirteen, lovely listener. If you've got this comic, <laughs> Superman three hundred and sixty-five. He's got male genitalia on his medallion. Ban this sick film. Oh, you have ruined this comic for me. That is a mammoth cock and balls. Wow. Well, not mammoth. Yeah, it's quite a tiny one, really. I had not noticed that medallion boy was wearing that. And now I, 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 I don't know what to say. I mean, it's obviously supposed to be the image from the next panel which is his leader getting in touch with him because there's the bulbous head and there's the, the sack <laughs> at the side it's supposed to be that coming through yeah but I, I think Kurt Swan was having a bit of a laugh at that. <laughs> don't you yeah. I had not noticed that and I, I thank you for pointing that out because now I can't not see it <laughs> excellent fairly typical then other than having a, a cock in it of this era this story was exhausting mm. wasn't it did you not think there are no pauses to catch your breath there's no subplots or secret identity shenanigans to provide levity this just starts and keeps going and herein lay its problem whilst this is a good way of getting the reader to identify with Superman's plight there's a feeling of jumping from one threat to the next with little rhyme or reason, and crucially, little reason to actually cur. Supergirl is ill. No, she's not. Yes, she is. Superman is exhausted. No, he isn't. Yes, he is. The plot is a frivolous little romp. No, it isn't. It's deadlier than that. The setup and resolution of the alien threat is unsatisfying, and Superman keeps solving all of his problems with made-up stuff from the fortress. If he has a kryptonite or an alien beast in there that solves every problem, where's the drama? Well, the drama is supposed to come from Kara, but what happens to her is solved so quickly that it's hard to generate any tension. Likewise, the mystery of what is going on is given up the instant Kara starts destroying stuff. So, again, without tension or drama. The art complements the story in that it, too, is unremarkable. In fact... That's pretty much the key word for this story. Unremarkable. To be fair, it's unremarkable. It's not boring. Bates keeps the pacing fast and he has a lot going on here. Enough to fill three modern comics. But I just kept coming back to the feeling that this was just a little bit meh. Because mm. that's a down with the kids thing, isn't it? Meh. Yeah. Yeah. What did you think? Or did you completely disagree with me? I really, really liked it. I... I just felt... Are you saying that just to take the mic? No, no, I really liked it. I just felt it wasn't handled as good as it could have been. Because I thought there were some great bits in it. There are great set pieces in it. Yeah. Once you get past the fact that the 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 X poison thing... The is, virus X. Yeah, the virus X is only, though, just to get Supergirl into the story. Yeah. And the beginning bit wasn't all that good until it got to the middle where Kara starts being grouchy and then she re- um, recognises or realises well, Superman realises that his miscalculation he'd already done the miscalculation yeah he'd already made the mistake yeah. the computer was predicting I, I liked that that he'd already made the mistake and didn't know about it so they were looking for a future mistake that he'd already made yeah right I like the Supergirl versus Superman fight mm. that's what I'm, I'm see I'm I don't want to say I didn't like it, because I did like it. 
I just thought it was a little bit meh. You know? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Well, I mean, but you, you liked it. I really so. liked the alien bit in it as well. But I, that was where it fell flat the most. It was a really good idea. It's not handled very well. It's entirely possible it's handled better in the sequel. Yeah, well, I've not read the sequel, but... No, I've not. I've, well, I've read the next issue, but it was alien, a while ago. The alien just showing up and saying, No, save me, and then dying, and him having no idea what's going on. I, I liked that. Right. It just wasn't handled very well. Mm. See, you've made me like it a little bit better. <laughs> I'd, see, it's one of them... I don't... Oh, See... The good concepts are just not handled very well. Yeah, it's rushed. Yeah is the point that I'm trying to make. And I wonder if that's just down to it just being a 19-page story. Hmm. If this had been a full issue, and he'd had a little bit more time to let the story breathe, and maybe a little bit of downtime as Clark or Cara Zorel or whatever her name was at this point, was it Linda Lee? Yeah. Maybe a little bit of a chance to, to... See, this is one of the things, one of the issues I think I have with some comics now, is that they're superheroes all the time. Yeah. And if there's superheroes all the time, there's no respite, there's no catching your breath, there's no moment for you to identify with. These were all pretty cool problems for Superman to solve, but they weren't identifiable problems for you as a reader. He was yeah. doing some cool stuff, but at the same time, without the human element, he's just Superman doing cool stuff. Dad, I liked how there was no slowing down, there was no resting time. Because the whole story's about Superman being tired and he can't get to sleep. Mm. So for there to just be action keeping him going all the time means he can't get the rest he needs. Good point, mm. actually. Alright. Okay, you've made me like it slightly more. <laughs> you've made me push it up a slight grade, I think. Oh, I still think it's very typical of this era. Yeah. And I still think there's, like you said, there's pacing problems. Mm. I think this may have been allowed to breathe a little bit better if it had been longer, but alright, okay. Go on, you've, you've succeeded, though, in, in making me think better of it than perhaps when I first read it. There was a backup strip called Superman the In-Between Years, which was written by Bob Rosakis, with art by Kurt Schaffenberger and Frank Chiaramonte. It was entitled, Were Oh Were Has Superboy Gone? Speculation runs high as to where Superboy will call his home after leaving Smallville. Lana wants him to come to Metropolis, so she keeps stalking him, but Clark isn't too sure. They are interrupted by a fellow frosh and his buddy, a hippie. They take the subway, which predictably has a brake problem, but after Clark does his thing, they sightsee atop the highest building in Metropolis. Clark spots Perry White standing on a ledge. He recalls Perry being the one who revealed Superboy was Kryptonian in his news story, and that whoever Perry is spying on, they are very nice. Clark pretends to be scared of heights, oh the irony, and changes to Superboy. He aids Perry without Perry being aware of it, enabling to get away from the gunmen. Later, though, Perry returns to the scene to spy a bullet melted by tremendous heat. Uh, Lana is really self-involved in this story. Yes, he wants to move to Metropolis, Lana, just to be near you. <laughs> wouldn't I, I didn't read a lot of Superboy, but wouldn't it have been fun to establish that Superboy was like, who the hell are you? Yeah. I didn't even know she was alive. Or pretended that he didn't, because obviously Clark knows who she is. Um, is TV so boring in Metropolis that they're televising the betting of where Superboy would move to? 
Yeah. That's got to be a boring TV oh, show. Maybe it's one of the, the channels in the 900s. Yeah, one of those local cable access stations yeah, yeah, yeah. that nobody watches. Alright, fair enough. Okay, I can go with that. Uh, Todd McFarlane has a letter on the lattice page. Oh, okay. Did you notice that? I did not. There you go, Calgary. Alberta. Right. So that really is Todd McFarlane. Is he writing about himself by any chance? He's not writing about himself. <laughs> no, and he's not writing Rise Above It All either, surprisingly. Or Doom, Doom. No, he's, he's not writing that either. He complains that too many aliens have been battling Superman. He prefers down to earth stories, but okay. that would explain why he has Spider Man fight people in alleyways. Yeah. He prefers <laughs> down to earth stories, doesn't he? Uh, pretty much uh, the same as the lead story for me. There's nothing actually wrong with this. Other than the feeling it's a tad quaint, mm. I thought. Reworked slightly, this would have made a decent episode of Smallville, because if we're being honest, there's no real need for him to change to Superboy in this story, is there? No. Other than in the era this was made, issues did not feature the title character. Uh, issues, sorry, that didn't feature the title character were very rare. Mm. So they had to have him be Superboy somewhere. The problem is it suffers from prequelitis. Perry is here before Clark meets him for the first time. So there's an element of predictability that comes from that. There's a remote possibility that Perry will die in a Superman story. A very remote possibility, but it's there. Yeah. But that's completely absent from a Superboy story. Likewise, will Perry uncover Superboy's secret? I don't know. Let me just leaf through the latest issue of Superman. Oh, no, he doesn't. So the tension isn't there. Uh, I've got to be honest, getting rid of Superboy never bothered me. Mm. I need stories like this that's the reason why. There's nothing here that can't be told as a Superman story, really. Or as a Clark Kent as a young boy story in the post-crisis era where he wasn't Superboy. And that would have just been a nice irony that he met Perry before he knew who he was. Mm. That would have been... I did like it that it was Perry in pre-crisis continuity that exposed him as a Kryptonian. Yeah. Because oh, you you have this idea that it was always Lois, don't you? Uh, it's a pretty standard issue of Superman from this time period. The Bronze Age of comics is all over this story. And being brutally frank, very little has changed with Superman since the Silver Age, and this issue is indicative of that. The art is the same as the 60s. The story, likewise, could have been told in the 60s with minimal alteration. And it's issues like this with its over-reliance on Krypton and the Fortress that probably led to the post-crisis reboot. As I said earlier, I'm going to great pains not to say I dislike this because I didn't. It does what it does competently. But for me, this was why I wasn't a regular reader of Superman as a kid. Whilst I adored the character... There was nothing that made me want to return month after month for more, as it literally was more of the same. It's a hard tightrope to walk, but ultimately I think we as readers were demanding more from our stories as the 80s began. And I think the fact that I had very little to say about this kind of testifies to its blandness. But you didn't agree. No. You quite liked the lead story. Did you like the Superboy story? Skin through it. <laughs> so that'd be no then. No, really. You're just not on Superboy. Yeah? Not Did you like it when Jeff Johns brought him back for that Legion story? I didn't mind it because it was an alright story. But you're not bothered about Superboy. No, no I'm just I'm less bothered Do you think about that the Legion. Is more. No, I don't care about the Legion either. <laughs> Do you think that's more because even though you or I are of different generations, we both essentially grew up with the same Superman? Yeah. Christopher Reeve Superman was never Superboy. Mm. 
and then the comics that you read when you were growing up, there was no Superboy. Yeah. Or certainly not Superman as a child was Superboy. There was the guy with the leather jacket and such. Yeah. And for me, although I read these, obviously, I considered the post-crisis reboot to be my version of Superman. Yeah. Well, I, I still see the Superman origin to be the film, so I have no idea when he could have been Superboy. Yeah, even though they did a Superboy TV series that allegedly took place in between him going to the Fortress of Solitude and stuff yeah. like that. And you sat there going, so when in that 12 years did he do all of this? <laughs> did he just let Jor-El waffle on? And he went, <laughs> yeah, right, I'm going to go. And then he came back four years later and after Superboy. <laughs> Jor-El's still speaking. Yeah. And Superman's just, oh, right, he's not noticed I've left. Like, yes. like when you're on the phone and the person on the other side just keeps waffling on you, put it down. You put it down and go make yourself a brew. Yeah. Come back and still talking. Yeah. I didn't mind Superboy in the new action comics that Morrison did. Because he wasn't Superboy, he was just a young Clark Kent who met the Legion. Right. Okay, fair enough. Let's see. So you had a higher opinion of that one than I did, and you made me slightly elevate my opinion. Yeah. Well, well done. <laughs> I like it when you do stuff like that. Let's throw that one out of the way. Look out! Batman! Runs the cover to Batman issue 339. Cover dated September 1981. Poison Ivy is back! The cover is by Rich Buckler and Dick Giordano and is a montage movie poster type cover. The Batman is symbolically large, looming over the Wayne Foundation building. You know, the one with the big tree in the middle of it. Presumably this tree is like the Humber Bridge and just needs constant trimming. Because you don't want it growing, do you? No. It'll knock these penthouse off, so you don't want any of that. Around the edges of the cover, Ivy kisses Bruce and then watches as he signs a Wayne Foundation official-looking document. It's pretty cool, telling an almost complete story. Batman is looking on helplessly as Bruce, obviously under Ivy's thrall, does something stupid. Plus, a box-out reads, Robin looks back on yesterday's heroes. Do you like that cover? Uh, yeah, kind of. It's very Neil Adams, isn't it? Yeah. The only problem with it, though, is after reading the issue, you'd know that that cover essentially tells you everything that goes on inside it. Yeah, there's a fine line, isn't there, between the covers that we get nowadays where they're just poster covers and rather bland, Yeah. and a cover that will bring you in and entice you to read the story. But yeah, you're absolutely right. You look at that cover, and the cover gives away the plot. Ivy's kissed Bruce to get him. You can guess that plot pretty much from that cover. Yeah. Especially if you're... I mean, Poison Ivy's lipstick is now a, a signature part of the character, isn't it? Yeah. I do wonder if this was the first time it was used, because she explains what it does. Yeah, I, I thought that. So I, this felt to me like it was the first time it was done. Mm. In which case, does Jerry Conway get paid for that? Because he gets paid for Killer Croc. Would you get paid for... A- character doing something though? I don't know the, the kiss lipstick could, you'd have to be able to prove that that's a, a different character I mean I understand getting paid for uses of a character but that you've you, created uses of a character doing something that you first made them do yeah yeah you're probably on shaky ground though right? <laughs> yeah alright forget that but yeah you're right with that foreknowledge that cover tells you the entire issue yeah alright fair enough a Sweet Kiss of Poison was written by Jerry Conway with art by Irv Novick and Steve Mitchell. The Batman has been burning the candle at both ends, patrolling the nights as the Dark Knight detective and patrolling the boardrooms by day as Bruce Wayne, head of the Wayne Foundation, and it's starting to take its toll. Case in point, an almost fatal mistake as the Batman arrives in the wee hours at his penthouse and almost misses the roof. Later that morning, Bruce dozes off in a meeting. 
Lucius Fox and Alfred both tell him he needs a vacation, but the closest he gets is an afternoon at the Empire Club, a swanky members-only affair. Inside, Bruce tells Hamilton, despite their friendship, he will not support his mayoral candidacy, as he is blaming Commissioner Gordon for problems out of Gordon's control. The political debate is disrupted when a stunningly attractive woman plants a long kiss on Bruce's lips, only for it to be revealed as a case of mistaken identity. Seems she mistook Bruce for Raymond and she leaves. Bruce knows every member of the club and Raymond isn't a name that rings any bells. Bruce is right to be suspicious. The woman was Poison Ivy and Bruce is but the sixth on a list of twelve. Later that night, the Batman spies a felony, but before he can act, the Gotham clock tower, save the clock tower, chimes 8pm. The Batman abandons all of his plans and, seemingly asleep, stalks the knights, heading to the theatre. Outside, 11 other men, all trustees of the Wayne Foundation. The Batman fights the urge to join them, for surely his identity as Bruce Wayne would be compromised, and enters the theatre stealing some clothes from the costumes lined up there. As Bruce, he rejoins the others, only to have Poison Ivy say they are all here under her command. All the men were kissed by Ivy, and all the men now obey her every whim. And her whim is to have them sign over the Wayne Foundation to her. Ivy sits and gloats as the board leave, but the Batman returns. However, Ivy strangles him with a vine and takes her leave. The Batman is wise to Ivy's ways and has an antidote, but when he tries to call Commissioner Gordon to tell him everything, he finds his throat constricts. If the Batman can't say anything, how can he stop Ivy? To be continued. Weird that both the DC books this week were to be continued, doesn't it? Yeah. Given that DC were traditionally done in one and Marvel was the make you buy the next issue. Uh, interestingly, no splash page. Or I thought it was interesting. Whether you did, I really can't say. Uh, a montage of early morning happenings, the sun rising, papers being delivered, etc. I thought that was quite good. Mm. Not a traditional splash. The story starts, no wasted space. But again, this issue had two stories, so he didn't really have a lot of space to waste, did he? Yeah. Novik draws a very slender Batman, quite different from the one being portrayed in current comics. It's hard to think as well that the current Batman would have nearly been killed by sun reflecting off a window. Mm. He'd have had lenses that protected his eyes from stuff like that, wouldn't he? Yeah. In modern day continuity. All of this living in the penthouse and running Wayne Enterprises is gloriously Bronze Age. Arguably, this is DC and writer Jerry Conway taking the tried and true formula of the Marvel comics and applying it to the Batman. It's not entirely successful. To pull this kind of thing off, you need to have a really interesting supporting cast. And whilst Batman may have one of the best rogues galleries in comics... Other than Lucius and Alfred, he doesn't really have a big supporting cast, does he? No. Barbara Gordon's also Batgirl. Yeah. Dick Grayson is also Robin. So he doesn't have that Peter Parker thing of, or the Clark Kent thing, mm. of everyone around him not knowing the secret and being able to play around with that. Because he doesn't have... Well, Bruce doesn't have any friends, does he, really? No. Other than other Clark. Than other superheroes. Yeah, other than other superheroes. That's what I'm saying. It's not, it's not that effective. It is interesting, though, and it's showing that DC are trying to do something with the character to make them contemporary. Just haven't quite got there yet. Mm. Get another couple of years. It is odd that Bruce doesn't recognise Ivy just because she's wearing a wig. She doesn't do anything else to disguise herself. No. And again, 
modern day Bruce Wayne probably wouldn't have fallen for this. I do also think that, as with the Superman comic we've just covered, the writer tips his hand too early. If you'd skipped page six of this, we could have only learned this this was Ivy when Batman does, which for the purposes of the story would have been a better reveal. Yeah. But granted, the cover's already ruined it for you. Yeah. And A Sweet Kiss of Poison, the title kind of gives away it's going to be Poison Ivy. Unless Alice Cooper wrote it. That's very good, yeah. <laughs> Alice Cooper could be in this song. That'd be great. Alice Cooper singing about a Batman comic. Oh, Bruce Wayne gets kissed by Alice Cooper. Oh! <laughs> oh, you should have wrote that in the 70s. Well, that's Alice Cooper's still around, isn't he? Yeah. He can still write that story. Still looks pretty good, doesn't he? Conway gets some neat humour out of the drugged Batman successfully stopping two felonies without actually doing anything. Mm. People are just scared of him so they stop what they're doing. Yeah. I thought that was funny. That generally made me laugh. Superman 2 is showing at the cinema that Batman walks past. Presumably, it's a completely different Superman 2 than the one that we saw. Otherwise, everyone knows his secret identity. Yeah. Even though that's the plot of the film. And it does actually say starring Crit as if it's going to say Christopher Reeve. That would have been much better if it had said starring Gregory Reed. Yeah. Who plays Superman in Superman comics. Right. He's the guy in Superman comics who plays Superman on film and television. Yeah. That would have been a nicer touch that the Superman 2 in the DC universe had Gregory Reed in it. I thought that would have been quite fun. Um, I didn't understand what's preventing the Wayne board from just writing it down. Yeah, what yeah. Poison Ivy's done to him. Yeah, I, that. I know they can't talk, but if, surely they could write it and say, we did this under duress. If, if Batman just sent a note to him. Yeah. Although, wouldn't it get lost in, in GCPD? Not post? if he went over there and wrote it in front of him sure, yeah. and said, here you go. I mean, the problem with that is he would then have to explain how Batman got his voice constricted. Yeah. So maybe Bruce Wayne could go over to Commissioner Garden and do that. Because mm-hmm. Bruce and... The commission were bestest buds at this time, weren't they? Yeah. Remember, in Batman number one, Commissioner Gordon goes over to Bruce's house just for a natter. Yeah. And then takes him to a crime with him. Yeah. <laughs> Which is perfectly normal in 1939, hey, Bruce want to see some dead bodies. <laughs> hey, Bruce, want to see what a real dead body smells like? <laughs> the fight with Poison Ivy is pretty anticlimactic, presumably because of page count, but Batman really does put up a pity poor showing, all things considered. Ivy has the upper hand right from the beginning. She catches him off guard with poison darts. He twists his own ankle. Yeah. Which was rather clumsy of him. And then she nearly throttles him. This isn't the godlike Batman of modern comics by any stretch of the imagination. No. Twists his own ankle. What a numpty. Um, I thought this was much better. A much better example of the kind of stories that this era did. Everything proceeds as a good clip, despite the abbreviated page count and the pacing's perfect. The characterisation is likewise spot on. Alfred and Lucius, ever the concerned figures, Bruce now a respected member of the community and business leader, instead of the playboy fop he's been portrayed as over the years. And there are even a few subplots thrown in. What's really good about this is this Poison Ivy story was not a two-parter. The issue ends on this cliffhanger, and then it was another couple of issues before Ivy set her plan in motion. So essentially this entire issue is one big subplot that will continue further down the line. Yeah. 
which I thought was quite interesting. And the art was pretty good, of Novik's pretty solid presence in Batman comics throughout the Bronze Age. It was, was alright. Did you like it? I didn't. You didn't? No. Well, we are so completely polar opposite. What did you not like about it? Well, I didn't mind the whole Bruce Wayne being tired thing. That was alright. Although we picked two DC comics where the hero was tired. Yeah, that was just dumb luck. Yeah, yeah. Wasn't it? That is a remarkable... <laughs> co- you know, I, I hadn't tweaked that, but you're right. Yeah. We picked two comics where the lead hero was suffering from... Um, what's it called when you're tired, Alita? Exhaustion. Exhaustion. Thank you very much. Yeah. And another of our issues is a bedtime story. Well, no, 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 no. The Spider-Man one as well. <laughs> He's exhausted throughout the issue. But it's more of his leg. Yeah, but he's exhausted through fighting the Frightful Four and he's not... Yeah. Blimey! We have, we have created a theme yeah. for this issue Tired and the rose. final one that we've picked is, yeah, like you say, a bedtime story. Yeah. You have blown my mind! Oh, I so wish we could make out that we'd planned this from the beginning, but we'd have to re-record the entire show and I'm not doing that. Yeah. Brilliant! Well done! Well pointed out. Anyway, you were saying why you didn't think much of the story. But, Apart from that, it was... Batman was lame. Batman was really lame. And when you have a lame Batman, you've got a lame story. He wasn't very competent, was he? I mean, you've got these guys who are turning themselves in because they're so scared of him. But he's actually pretty crap in this issue. He nearly kills himself because of the sun glinting off the window. Yeah. And like, like I said, Poison Ivy owns him. Uh, yeah, Poison Ivy. Poison Ivy doesn't do anything because Batman just twists he, his ankle. He essentially takes himself out. Yeah. And Poison Ivy takes full advantage of it. So yeah, you're absolutely right. Batman's a little bit lame. Yeah. In this particular issue. All right, fair enough. You've not changed my. I enjoyed reading this more than I enjoyed the Superman one. Yeah. But you, you're not wrong about Batman being a little bit crap. Yeah. In this particular story. The backup Yesterday's Heroes was also by Conway and Novick, but inked by Bruce Patterson. Dick Grayson has quit Hudson U and working with the Batman and has returned to Haley's Circus. As he performs in an effort to learn who Dick Grayson really is, a mistake teaches him that Dick Grayson is Robin as much as Robin is Dick Grayson. Excellent shot of Robin on the splash page. Of him just crouching down. Um, this era was confusing as well. It wasn't confusing, but it was the era where Robin had a green domino mask. Yeah. He did that quite a lot. And there's a part of me that quite likes it because it matches his gloves and his shorts mm. and his short sleeve tunic. So I quite liked him having a green mask rather than a black one. That's just me, though, I suppose. Uh, I thought this was a nifty little tale concerning Dick's continuing steps out of the shadow of Batman that will ultimately lead him to not being Robin anymore. Interestingly, not a lot of Dick Grayson's origins changed over the years, has it? No. This is pretty much what his origin still is. I mean, maybe one day Dick will be part of Cirque du Soleil rather than a travelling circus, but for now, this still works, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. This still works quite well. He's going to have really, really sore hands at the end of this issue, though, because he swings down that rope bare-handed. Yeah. That's going to burn. I don't care who you are. (laughs) That is going to be... Very so. Did Maybe. you like the Robin story? It was alright. Only alright? I just thought, do we really need that just to learn that Dick Grayson is Robin? I liked it. I'll be honest, I thought it was a nifty little four-page recap of Robin's origin. In an era where there were no trade paperbacks or yeah. stuff like that. So, 
you do you did have to bring your readers up to speed every now and again. You know again. what it does amaze me that there's loads of issues of Batman and Superman and Spider Man's never been collected. Well still. I think Probably. all of Amazing Spider Man's in print at the minute, isn't it? If you count omnibuses, yeah. essentials, these new Marvel Epic collections, I think on MarvelMasterworks.com somebody said pretty much every issue of Amazing Spider-Man is currently in print for you to just go out and buy. So what about Batman and Superman then? I don't know that that's true with Superman yeah. or Batman. But it has, if you're counting comicsology right, as yeah. well, then I think I most of Batman stuff's on there now. In collected editions? Oh, right, I don't know, because I don't know how far the archives and the showcases got with those characters. But I know Amazing Spider-Man, pretty much every single issue is in print yeah. for you to be able to go and buy. Right, okay. Roughly. Yeah. It's out there right. for you to be able to afford. But I don't think every issue of Batman or Superman is. I certainly don't think that issue of Superman's ever been reprinted anywhere. Yeah. So you could be right about that. Or oh, this issue of Batman. Mm. I don't know that this issue of Batman's available other than on Comicsology. Mm. Does that count as a reprint? Is it on Comicsology? I think they've just got up to this era of Batman on Comicsology. They may not have reached 339 yet. Right. You remember when they had them that. 50% sale off yeah. Batman they just got to around issue 300-ish right. end of the 299, 298, 300, 301 around there but they haven't put issue 300 on so right, they went from okay. 299 to 301 Fair why enough. they skipped issue 300 I've got no idea but maybe they want you to try and buy the <laughs> back issue of that um, I thought this was entertaining and diverted again a fairly typical Batman story of the era I, I felt it held better together held together better, sorry, than the Superman title. Uh, you didn't. Uh-huh. I felt that the changes that had been made to Batman in the early 70s had stuck, unlike Superman, which were largely ignored after Denny O'Neill left, and moving Batman with the times kind of makes Batman endure more than Superman does. But, you know, we both had different opinions on it, so... Uh-huh. Who knows? Our next issue is also about a tired superhero. Well spotted, <laughs> young Michael. The Amazing Spider-Man was in a pretty strange period at this point. While still Marvel's flagship character, Spider-Man, was in kind of a limbo state. Marv Wolfman's run had him graduate ESU, but then go to graduate school, which kind of confused me. Graduated school to go to school. And issue 200, despite being inexplicably popular, I was found a little bit underwhelming. Wolfman's run is very uneven, and he quits unexpectedly, leaving a number of fill-in writers like David Michelinie and Roger Stern to wrap up his loose ends. Denny O'Neill, famous for reinventing Batman, took over as writer, and from that run we've selected issue 216, Marathon, which was cover dated May 1981. The interior art was by John Romita Jr. and Jim Moonit, whilst the cover was also by Romita Jr. but inked by Al Milgram. I like the cover a great deal. It's Junior at his most senior, but it's pretty iconic look for Spider-Man, so there are no complaints from me. Spider-Man swings over the crowd at the New York Marathon as a sniper takes aim. The race is on, runs the copy. Will death be the victor? And don't miss the return of Madam Web. Yay. That'll bring him in, won't it? Yeah. Madam Web coming back. Well, I don't know about you, but seeing that on the cover of this comic made me go, ooh, I must pick that up. She's almost got more room on the page than Spider-Man. She almost has, yeah. It's like, why are we making such a big deal about Madam Web? Peter returns home from his swanky hotel to his smoke-damaged apartment, which has been fixed. 
allegedly. Beaten and weary after a fight with the Frightful Four, he heads to Deb Whitman for some TLC, but is put out when Deb has a fella around. Peter, miffed, instead takes himself to the ER. Whilst there, Peter overhears two men talk about a gun and how a certain someone will never run again. Peter presumes they are after killing someone in the New York Marathon that is happening this weekend. As he is being bandaged up by the nurse, he can't follow the men or get a good look at them. Peter consults with clairvoyant Madame Webb, who can't give him specifics, but says she will continue to do all she can and will be in touch. Sunday morning, Spider-Man is with the runners. He stops various and sundry misdemeanours, but nothing that points to his target. Public phones ring around him, which he ignores. After numerous incidents, Madam Webb finally gets in touch, informing Spider-Man that a victim is a politician named Barney Wicker, and the race is a congressional one, not the marathon. Spider-Man makes tracks locating the gunmen where Madam Webb said they would be. With one final Herculean effort, the weary and wounded wall crawler crashes the men with a water tower, then collapses. Not to be continued. No. And another issue where the entire story has the central character just be knackered. Yeah. I'm glad you pointed this out, because <laughs> I just can't let that go now. That's absolutely brilliant. Uh, Peter Parker's relationship with Deborah Whitman was always slightly dubious and there is no better evidence of that than here Peter's first thought is that Deb can look after him taking her for granted and when she isn't in he's shocked that Deb may have a life away from Peter Parker how dare she (laughs) he then comments that she's pretty under all that shy which is really insulting of him yeah I thought I mean, to be fair, Deb was never really Peter's type. Even Betty Brandt had a bit of get-up-and-go to her and Murray Jane and Gwen were vivacious, outgoing women. Deb was none of those things. Mm. She was more like Peter himself was in high school, which, you know, is probably why they weren't right for each other. The Deborah Whitman thing ultimately culminates with her finding out he's Spider-Man and then Peter tricking her... into thinking that he isn't Spider-Man and thinking that she actually had a mental breakdown. Right, okay. okay. Well done, Pete! (laughs) (laughs) And then she leaves and she never comes back until after Civil War when she writes a book about what a bastard Peter Parker is (laughs) for making her think that he wasn't Spider-Man when he was and making her think she had a mental breakdown. Right, okay. That's true, that happened in um, Peter David's Friendly Neighborhood (laughs) Spider-Man. It's totally true. Uh, Nice beginning to the issue, though, with Spider-Man beaten, bruised and tired from the last issue and doing his oh, woe is me bit. Mm. Lovely splash page. Yeah. I think that splash page absolutely fantastic. And when you consider that you're Spider-Man walking away from us on a rooftop, you would think, that's really boring, but it's not, Mm. isn't it? It's absolutely awesome splash. Ramita's art is very nice in this issue, aided by Jim Mooney. At this point, Romita Jr. hasn't become John Romita Jr. yet. He's still largely a clone of his dad, but he uses a lot of shading and shadows to make his work seem a little rougher than Romita Sr.'s, and it works well throughout the issue. Frank Miller was doing this over in Daredevil, and it makes the comic look a little bit grittier, which is quite effective when a lot of it takes place at night in alleyways. This is a very grimy and gritty New York City, isn't it? Yeah. There are trash cans all over the place, and there's litter everywhere, and it doesn't make it particularly appealing 
but it no. certainly makes it real and I like that as, as well Jim Mooney likewise is an artist I think we've said before who can subsume others work when he inks but it works very well in this issue it works very well with, uh, with John Jr there is a continuity goof in this issue at the hospital Peter pulls his cowboy boots on yeah okay alright right. go back a couple of pages when he's swinging around town and they're clearly just regular shoes yeah when he takes them off and ties them around his neck so he can go wall crawling so that's a little tiny which is a shame because the continuity on his torn costumes pretty spot on throughout the entire book isn't it yeah I was very impressed that the rip in his mask stayed ripped all the way through Peter's really miserable in this issue yeah and there's a part of me that wonders do you think he suffers from depression maybe he, he does have quite the he does have lows doesn't he yeah. he does have moments of really being low and there are times when you think you can understand it because in this issue crap is just piled upon him yeah I mean the building has been repaired but his house or his apartment sorry is a mess the plaster's cracked the walls are stained there's water damage everywhere his entire clothes wardrobe stinks of smoke that he's just not going to get rid of the guy upstairs does he sing in this issue he doesn't does he does he sing in this issue do you like him the cowboy singing neighbour don't know you want to hear him he will have a major subplot okay that runs throughout a number of issues right which is actually really quite funny not very good (laughs) but funny the issue that follows then is just a run and jump and chase one isn't it pretty much the back half of this is that entire Superman story yeah once the story gets going it doesn't stop and there's no respite but this had the beginning bit to help you ease yourself into all of that but there's a bit where Spider-Man comes across someday who he thinks he's carrying a rifle, but it's actually a banjo. A couple of things here. One, his spider sense doesn't go off. No. So there's a warning, Spider-Man, that there is no warning. Yeah. So there's no real danger there. Second, Spidey kicks this guy, and then doesn't apologise. He does say he's too embarrassed to apologise. He's too embarrassed to apologise. That's bollocks. (laughs) He could have said, oh, I'm really sorry, man, let me pick up your banjo for you. Yeah. I didn't mean to do that. You know, I I mistook you for someone else. You know, we we mentioned when we did the issues with Jerry Conway that some people struggle writing Peter or Spider-Man. He can be a bit aloof, but there's a difference between making him a smart-ass and making him unlikable. Mm. And I felt that there was absolutely no reason for him not to say, oh, look, I'm really sorry about that. Yeah. Don't sue me. I mean, good luck with that. Well, he, <laughs> he, he didn't apologise for stealing that guy's McDonald's, did he? No, that's true. So, he never did, but that was grossly out of character as well. Jameson has every right to call him a menace. Yeah, you're absolutely right, based upon that. Throughout the entire issue, did you notice this? There are posters for Barney Wicker and TV spots and adverts playing that signpost the end of the issue. Yeah. Yet it's really subtly done. Mm. At no point does it smack you in the face. It's only when you get to the end and you go back and look through it again, you go, oh, here's a poster for Barney Wicker, though. Yeah. And there was a newspaper report, though, talking about the election race that's currently going on. Oh, yeah. that was a really good job by Danny Neal. Really, really subtle piece of writing. I just find it hilarious that the entire issue was just... A waste of time. Yeah. 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 Because if he'd got it right from the get-go, he could have just gone straight to the end and then gone home and got some sleep. Which is, you know... Yeah, that's absolutely right. Yeah. Um, 
the differences, such as they were between Marvel and DC at this point, are clearly delineated in this story. In comparison to the two DC books, in the Superman story, Clark Kent doesn't even appear, and in the Batman story, the Bruce Wayne portion was directly related to what happened to Batman. But here, Peter Parker is the focus of the story. The issue is driven by Peter's life, his misfortunes, his loves, and Spider-Man is a direct response to that. Spider-Man isn't a person. He's Peter's escape from everyday life, but even here he's still burdened by Peter's issues and problems. Contrast this with the DC titles, where Superman and Batman are clearly the stars of the show. There's a lot of attention paid to the subsidiary characters, Deb and Biff Rifkin, Peter's neighbour, a country singer, and Madame Webb, but it never feels cramped. O'Neill allows these subplots to happen naturally. Even the expositional news network copyright Mikey Might Be, which is used throughout, feels organic. I especially adored the scenes in the middle, a proper piece of Peter Parker introspection, where he considered ignoring the warning of the gunman. After all, Peter has his own problems. However, Peter is looking in a mirror whilst all this is going on, and whilst the symbolism of being able to look oneself in the eye Maybe a bit on the nose, obvious symbolism can still be good symbolism. Anil's run on Amazing has few admirers, but I thought this issue was a solid read. I'd rate it above both of the DC books for this week in that it was a one-issue story that carried over its subplots from issue to issue, but still was solidly entertaining. There was also more to chew on than in the Superman book, and I think it was a more satisfactory reading experience than the Batman issue. What did you think? I didn't really enjoy it that much. Oh, you're killing me, man! I, I have a lot of problems with, with Spider-Man. In what way? In the way that Spider-Man isn't... Ac- or didn't used to be as accessible as, say, Superman or Batman. How do you mean? There are a lot more subplots in this. There are a lot more supporting characters. And what's that can be a good thing for ongoing readers? If we're just picking an I- issue at random... Hmm. For me personally, I can't access it quite as well as others because of the subplots that I'm reading from halfway through. Right. See, that's that's an interesting point, and it's always a good way of having you on. I was able to give you chapter and verse yeah. on this period in Peter Parker's life, where the Deb Whitman subplot went, all of that gubbins. So you felt that hindered the issue? Yeah. Right. Especially okay. with Madam Web. I've never liked Madam Web. But it's, this issue kind of focuses a little bit on her. Yeah. Because ultimately she is who points Spider-Man out to the right direction. Yeah. And say we're just picking this issue at random and you've no idea who Madam Web is. Yeah. And you've no idea who Deb Whitman is and you've no idea about the fire. There's a lot of subplots in Spider-Man that can hinder it a bit. Alright, valid point. I thought that was good, but am I bringing rose-tinted nostalgia goggles with me? Possibly. Very possibly. Uh, Before we move on to the final issue this week, which isn't the actual issue, it's in an essential volume, I did say we'd make note of stuff like prices. What was interesting, all three of these were different prices. Yeah. They're all UK prices, obviously. Uh, The Superman issue was 20 pence, and that came from November of 1981. Batman was only 15p, from September of 1981, and The Amazing Spider-Man was 20p from May of 1981. So the Marvel comic was more expensive than the DC comics, but Batman was cheaper than Superman. 
I found it funny that it's got Spinal's got a sticker on saying it's 40. Yeah, I must have picked that up at uh, second hand store because Amazing Spider Man, when I was a kid, you couldn't get it. Yeah. You could only get sporadic issues. It was only towards issue 250 you started being able to get Amazing Spider Man over here regularly. Yeah. Or for me, anyway, in my area. Yeah. Maybe in different other areas of the country. But um, that would play into Marvel UK not shipping over comics that they were publishing. Yeah. Because they didn't want to compete with themselves. Fair enough. Okay. The Uncanny X-Men is, in many ways, going to be the most interesting part of the next four weeks, as we're both in uncharted waters. My X-Men phase hadn't really started yet, and despite me having a decent knowledge of the work Clomer did with Byrne, due to the UK reprints, I only really jumped on board with Paul Smith. As such, these are really going to be the purest examples of whether we think this material holds up without the benefit of the nostalgia goggles of the other three characters. Therefore, I can't really tell you where the X-Men were at this point. I know Jean is dead, again, and Kitty is part of the team. No, she was dead for the first time, wasn't she? Kitty yeah. Pride is part of the team, but the rest is a blank spot, despite me having these essential volumes. I honestly think in this one, I've only read the annuals at the back, which is the George Perez and whoever the other artists were on the other annuals, Bob McLeod and stuff, because I just didn't get into Dave Cochran second time round I just mm. couldn't get into it no disrespect to him it just wasn't my bag man so with an issue picked purely at random Uncanny X-Men issue 153 came out in October of 1981 the cover by Dave Cockrum and Joe Rubenstein has Kitty Pride holding a bucket of popcorn and standing before a torn poster of Colossus holding her as they swing. Various caricatures of the other X-Men are scattered around. And now for something completely different, says Kitty, presumably implying that this is the X-Men's flying circus. Kitty's furry tail had art by the aforementioned and was written by Chris Claremont, although, according to comics creators on X-Men, this was all Cockrum's idea. Do you like that cover? Yeah. It's alright, isn't it? Mm. Does what it's supposed to it's okay. Whilst tidying up the school for gifted youngsters after a recent battle with the Hellfire Club, Kitty and Colossus took Ileana, Peter's sister, into bed. Ileana wants Kitty to read her a story, but Kitty goes one better, making up a furry tale for the ages with her as a swashbuckling pirate, Colossus as her true love, and the other X-Men in various different roles. Kitty tells Ileana a sanitised version of the Dark Phoenix saga with added Robin Hood to spice things up, replete with sword and sorcerer. This version, however, culminates in Jean being successfully freed from the Dark Phoenix force and reunited with her one true love, Cyclops. As Kitty and Peter sneak out of a slumbering Ileana's bedroom, she is surprised to see the rest of the X-Men have been listening to her tale. Instead of being upset, they are all touched by Kitty's furry tale. Especially... Cyclops. Did you like this one? I actually did. It was alright. Yeah. I quite enjoyed this one as well. I was a little bit confused over Lockheed. Why? Because at this point in time was Lockheed Kitty's pet dragon? No. You will see that next week. So was this foreshadowing? Yes. Or, or, yeah. Kind of-ish. Because Lockheed in this is the, the jet. Yes. Remember that for next week. Okay. Because by pure coincidence, again, yeah. next week is another X Men issue where the mansion gets trashed. Right. And the Lockheed thing plays into it. 
so remember that for next time. Oh, year. is it just a name she quite likes or something? Uh, wait and see. Oh, okay. Wait and see and read next week's issue. Um, it's rather whimsical and atypical. This was a rather random pick. One that is rather offbeat in relation to the other X-Men stories of the time. It's undeniably lightweight and throwaway. Clermont manages to weave in some tried and true X-Men-isms into the story, with yet a no-go-around with Dark Phoenix. It's not without its humour. Kitty envisions everyone as being vaguely cartoony or being in love with her, and in Banff's case, both. Wolverine being cast as a Tasmanian devil is also a lot of fun. The art does the job, sometimes being quite inspiring, sometimes being quite adequate, but that's my feeling on Dave Cockrum generally. I can appreciate his draftsmanship and design skills without ever really being blown away by anything I've ever seen him do. Not a bad issue, but a tad too chimerical for me. I, I liked it. Alright. Because... I didn't, that's just something that I want to put straight here. I didn't dislike anything yeah. we've covered this week. Well, I like... With with long runs of a title, I, I like offbeat issues. Like, didn't Clermont do it for 15 years? Yes, yeah, something like that. So Morrison's Batman, he did... Uh, um, he did for a comparable amount of time, didn't a, he? A prose. Um, Warren Ellis on Transmet did uh, prose issues again. Mm. So I like those offbeat issues in a, in a long run. And it... It was, it was good to pick a random issue that was a standalone offbeat yeah. issue I mean what are the odds out of this essential volume essential volume 3 yeah. we would randomly pick an issue that was a single issue story because we've come out of one big long story with Magneto and then I think we go into a big long story with the Starjammers next Yeah. so like slap dab in the middle there's this Kitty's furry tail issue that we just picked at random mm. that was quite lucky that yeah. Otherwise, we could have found ourselves in the middle of a story and not know what the hell was going on. We did, I mean, yeah, the X-Mansion was trashed after a fight, but it didn't yeah. really matter. No, that's all you needed to know, wasn't yeah. it? X-Mansion was trashed. Yeah, no, like I said, it was okay. I didn't, I didn't dislike any of them this week. So if you had to pick a best one, which one would you go for? My favourite this week was Superman. Really? Mm. Okay, mine was Although, Spider-Man. that did seem like the oldest one. Yeah, you it could, was good and it was entertaining, but like I said, you could tell that story in the 60s. Yeah, you could say, you could tell me that came out in the 60s and I'd believe you. Well, because um, it's still Kurt Swan, and, yeah. Yeah, and ultimately I think that may be its problem. So, the early 80s, still very definitely the Bronze Age for good and ill. None of these were terrible. All were good, solid, enjoyable comics, each with their own pros and cons. None were a waste of time, none were a waste of money. It's kind of dull, I know, when we do a show that basically boils down to they were all good. No more, no less. But it's pretty much where we find ourselves this week, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Nothing bad. Nothing exemplary. No. But cer- I certainly wouldn't have feel I wasted my money if I'd bought any of those comics. Mm. And I did. So that's a good thing. Next time, an all new episode of Hate Kids Comics. It's 1983. And we'll be looking at Superman issue 380, Batman issue 356, Amazing Spider-Man issue 240, and Uncanny X-Men issue 168. It'll be grody to the max. You like that? Yeah. We hope that you will join us. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Goodbye.
cynicism, the devil will find work for idle hands to do production. The music and sound clips used in the show are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only. And no infringement is intended, so don't send your phalanx of highly paid lawyers after us as we have no money. Certainly this show has not turned into a lucrative revenue stream as no money is made from this either, which vexes us. The opinions of Michael and Andrew expressed in the show are the opinions of Michael and Andrew and no one else. They own them, cherish them and look after them, but are probably not to be taken too seriously. New episodes drop every Thursday at twotruefreaks.com and we can be emailed directly at heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. We can also be friended on Facebook by using Hey Kids, all one word as the first name, and Comics as the surname. We do hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics. <laughs>